Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a brand new interview with one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. And if you're enjoying the director's cut, please take a moment to like, share, or comment. We love hearing your feedback. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Joe Wright's new drama, Darkest Hour. Set during the early days of World War II, the film tells the story of how Winston Churchill wrestled with the decision of whether to negotiate with Adolf Hitler or continue to fight against incredible odds, with the full knowledge that the fate of Western Europe would hang in the balance. In addition to Darkest Hour, Mr. Wright's credits include the feature films Pan, Anna Karenina, Atonement, and Pride and Prejudice, an episode of the anthology series Black Mirror, and episodes of the miniseries The Last King, Bob and Rose, and Nature Boy. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Wright spoke with director Matt Reeves about filming Darkest Hour. During their conversation, Mr. Wright discusses his first meeting with Gary Oldman, why he rarely shoots coverage, and what propelled him to make a film about Winston Churchill. Congratulations. Hello. Thank you. And a beautiful film and so beautifully directed. Um, I just want to talk to you, you know, since we're here at the DGA, about, about process, about the way you work. Um, and let's just start at the beginning. Like, what draws you to, to pro like, this is obviously, it's an incredible story. Um, so there's that. But is there something, is there some, is there some other level or something sort of unspoken that kind of drew you to it as well? Or how did it come about? How did, how did this um, come to you? Uh, well, I was sent the... Um, hello, everybody. Um, hi. <laughs> hi. I'm really... Um, I was saying to Matt outside, I'm a little bit nervous um, uh, um, being at the DGA and, and so on. Um, so, there we go. That's out of the way. Um, <laughs> right, too. yeah. Um, right, so, I was sent the screenplay in January 2016, uh, and I... All right, honestly, what happened yeah. was... Um, I was, you know, I, I read the script, I laughed, I cried. Um, uh, I thought it was an extraordinary story. But I was once told that if there, if there were a script that you knew a secret about, then that's the one you should do. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I identified with Winston Churchill, mm -hmm. which wasn't, uh, which I hope isn't too grand a statement. Um, but I had just made this movie, Pan, uh, which was my first foray into um, the big studio world. And it had lost probably about $100 million and, um, and had been universally slated. And I went through, I went into a kind of crisis of confidence and, and self-doubt. And I thought that maybe the industry had no place for me and I didn't understand the audience anymore. And, um, and maybe I should just retreat to the theater. Um, and then I read this script, and it was about doubt, and it was about a moment of uh, a crisis of self-confidence, and, and, and it was about how that doubt could be turned into something positive, and that doubt was a key component in the attainment of wisdom. And, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to try this. 
and if it doesn't work, then I'll then I'll stop. You know, um, uh, and 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 also I just wanted to do drama. I didn't want to do you know big bang flash wallop. I just wanted to do as interior and as concentrated drama. It's what I what I love. It's what I grew up loving, um, and hopefully it's what I'm best at. Well, that's remarkable. Um, are you when you when you read it? Were you was your first? Thought, I mean, I mean, I know that you was was it your idea for for Gary or how did that how did that come about? Yeah, it was. Um, you know, I thought so. So then it comes. Okay, is this really? You know, is there an audience for this movie? Um, I'm not sure that I would go and see a movie about Winston Churchill. Uh, if it and and then I kind of thought, you know, because I was thinking of the classic Churchill type actors, and then I thought of Gary. And I thought, well, I'd go and see Gary Oldman play Winston Churchill. I'd pay money to go and see that. Um, uh, so, and Gary, you know, I grew up in London without much means in the 80s and 90s. And Gary was the Don, the, you know, he was the geezer. He was the, the greatest actor of his generation, is, I believe. And, um, and so I, and, and he has that intensity. And the Churchill that I saw was a Churchill who was basically kind of manic depressive. You know, he mm. was he was he had this intensity of energy, and often Churchill's portrayed as as having been born in a bad mood, um, kind of this curmudgeonly old grumpy bloke who shuffles around. Whereas actually, the Churchill that I saw on the newsreel footage led from the front. He led with his head, you know, or led with his cigar. He he was always you know moving at five you know his thinking at five hundred miles an hour. And uh, and everyone had to keep up with him, and uh, and then he'd have these moments of crash, you know, um, and despair. And so Gary, as we know from his body of work, uh, is quite good at intensity, mm. and um, and so he seemed like the man for the job. And the f the exterior stuff you can fake, but the interior you can't. I don't think. And so he just immediately was drawn to it, or did you have to convince him? Or how no, did that... I think he was a bit dubious at first, um, but I went and I. And dubious why? Like, what was it when he resisted at all? Because he doesn't look anything like yeah, Churchill, okay. you know. For the obvious I mean, reason. Like, okay. It was quite, you know, how on earth is this skinny little bloke going to... Skinny little bloke, that's not very nice. Um, <laughs> but how on earth is he going to play Churchill? Um, but he was intrigued, nevertheless. You know, I mean, it's like a Falstaff or a King Lear or something. Uh, so I went and met him on the way over... Um, on the on the way to his house, his 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 manager picked me up and drove me. It was driving me to his house, and on the drive he said, "Gary's very nervous," mm. and I was like, "Yeah, right. He's Gary Oldman, <laughs> you know. I'm nervous." Um, and I arrived and I found Gary a little bit kind of shaky, and I thought, "Oh, he is nervous. He's just like any other actor. He needs to feel loved and supported and um, and encouraged, really, um, and trusted." Um, and so I set about doing that. Um, and, uh, and you have to love all of your actors, you know, you have to love them. And, um, and so I think, I think that's what kind of brought him in. Maybe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then when you, so Kazu, who did the makeup, I have to say, this is the most incredible makeup I think I've ever seen in a movie. It's just, it's astonishing. I don't, I, I truly look at it. And I, I'm ast astonished. It's amazing. And 
I think what's incredible about it is that, first of all, I can't tell that it's makeup. It doesn't look like Gary at all. And there's no CGI. That's what I was going to ask Zero. you. Zero. Okay, so there's none. So basically, Kazu is a genius. Yeah. And, um, and the other thing is, is that what's amazing about it is that not only is it a total transformation, I mean, that could have been like this guy. Right? Like, it doesn't have to be Gary, right? You're like, who's that guy? Yeah. I mean, that's, it, and, and obviously, the huge part of that is Gary and what he's done, which is incredible. But that mixture of the two, and um, I guess what blows me away is like how much is, that he can emote through it so that you're able to connect to him, so that you're able to go on this journey where you, you know, it could be this feat where you're just sitting there going like, well, yeah, there's this wonderful makeup, but you really, it's much more than that. So it's, and that's, I think, the thing that makes it incredible is not only can I tell that it's makeup, but that you're able to read his performance so beautifully through it. And how was, how was that arrived at? What kind of process was that? Well, actors, different actors act with different parts of their faces, mm -hmm. right? Um, Gary acts with this part of his face. Um, so I knew that no, no prosthetics could go on that area. Okay. Um, uh, he also acts with his kind of bottom lip a lot. So nothing could go there. Right. Um, and then it was basically a process of trial and error. And, and we spent six months developing the makeup uh, I'd fly back and forth. Doing a lot of photographic tests as well? or Not really, just, just looking eye. at him. Yeah, just wow. looking at him. And, and at first it looked, you know, the first attempt was way too much. It looked like he had a raw chicken on his face, <laughs> um, which was really horrible. Um, and, then, and then we went too little and it looked nothing like Churchill. Mm. Um, uh, Gary's eyes are a lot closer together than Churchill's, but we couldn't break his skull open. Um, so we found, we, we, you know, and, and I think in the end, we found a sweet spot between looking like Churchill and allowing accessibility to Gary's performance. It's all, the makeup is basically all around there, 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 there. So it's all around this area right. um, and a bit of nose. Uh, and, and then nothing. was his, ha his hair shaved up here? He shaved his head every day. Right. Um, it's a very slight wig. He spent four hours in makeup every morning. Um, I didn't actually see Gary for three months while we were filming. Wow. Um, apart from when he turned up for Christmas dinner at my house and it was like this stranger. It was a bit <laughs> odd. Um, didn't recognize him. And were there limits in terms of, not to dwell on this too much, but just because I'm so blown away by it, the... Were there limits in terms of uh, how you would shoot it? Like when you looked at him, was it just looking at like that could, that's, it looked the way it does. Yeah. Like, yeah. That, I mean, I, I pushed in further and further and further until the day when we shot um, the scene where he's on the telephone to uh, Roosevelt and, and I found myself going that Super tight, tight. Yeah. and I couldn't see it. Uh, different angles. I mean, if, he, if you were shooting kind of higher angle, he looked more like Gary. Mm. Um, and lower angle, he looked more like Churchill. Okay. So I shot m more lower uh, angle, really, except for, you know, in the end, I, I mean, especially at the beginning of the movie, I'm a bit lower, so that you feel more like Churchill. At the end, you've bought into the performance, so you can come, to come up a bit for that scene with the king, for instance, when you want to make Churchill feel smaller. Right. That, that brings to mind to me, because you have a... I, I admire your visual style. I think that you have a, um, a direct, just directorially, there's, there's a tremendous amount of control and narrative. Um, and you start, I, I was talking about this because that's actually how I started, but you, you made eight millimeter films when you were yeah. a kid? Yeah, I'm and, dyslexic. Right. Um, and so I, I wasn't really able to read um, uh, or write, but um, my mum 
took me, I went to the cinema when I was six years old for the first time, saw Close Encounters of the Third oh, Kind, wow. um, which like, I mean, I just hid behind the seat for most of the uh, film. And I think my entire career has been about overcoming that fear. Um, uh, but I went home to my mum and I said, how do you make movies? I want to make movies. Mm. And she's she, a very amazing woman, my mum, and she had a long strip of cartridge paper, right? right. Like a toilet roll of yes. cartridge paper. And we divided this paper into boxes like this. Yeah. And then we started drawing uh, um, almost like a Renaissance cartoon. We started ah. drawing, first of all... Um, uh, George and the princess and then the dragon came and stole the princess in the next picture and so wow. on and so forth and rather like Uccello's painting of um, of George and the dra dragon the, the, the um, George stabbing the dragon in the eye with a, with a, with his um, lance and then we got a shoebox and we cut an aperture in the lid of the shoebox oh and then we got two garden sticks and we put the, the, the paper onto these garden sticks and then we wound the paper through the aperture, picture after picture, and she said, that's how you make films. Wow. Um, <laughs> and uh, cool woman, huh? Yeah. Um, uh, and that, it took me quite some years to discover that you also needed a camera. And, um, <laughs> uh, but you were six then. But I was, yeah. But and then I, when did you get the eight millimeter camera? Point. I got an eight millimeter camera when I was about nine. Okay. Um, my first film was a study of daffodils in St. James's Park. <laughs> Uh, very beautiful study. Um, and uh, and then I started doing kind of clay animations and all of that stuff. Right. And um, I was really into David Lean at the time as well. So I used to kind of... When you were nine or six? When I was nine. Okay. Yeah, ten. I started building sets of the... the um, you know the, the 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 famous Magwitch scene in in the um, in the graveyard. Mm. I wanted to do that scene, um, so I built a set and made a poster. It was always very important to design the poster. This was Scorsese used to do the same thing. I don't know if you've ever looked uh, back at his. Yeah. I was when I was a kid. I was a huge, like obsessed. Like that's why I wanted to be a director. And yeah. I had these books, and I had he did exactly the same thing. Drew images, mm. frames before he had a camera, and then made them, and then had these posters. Yeah, right the way through. I mean, in my twenties, I was drawing storyboards. I was never into cartoons or comic books or wow. anything like that. I, but I would, I would draw storyboards for films that never got made. You know, really. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, because that's interesting, because what I was going to ask you, what I wanted to ask you process-wise, because you're, the film is so beautifully choreographed, and, and, and I want to talk to you about the, the music aspect of it as well, because I feel that you're, the, the cutting, the rhythm of what goes on, obviously cinema is very rhythmic, but your, your camera work mm. is very rhythmic, and I looked at it a lot, and I thought, well, the, this, a lot of this stuff looks to me like it would be very planned. So does that mm. same style that started, do you storyboard? Do you draw your frames out? I storyboard key moments or key scenes. I don't storyboard every scene, mm -hmm. um, but I certainly plan every scene. If I don't storyboard it, then I'll draw a plan of the set and then mark out where the cameras go. Right. Um, uh, but most scenes I kind of have a, at least two or three key moments within a scene. that I Transitions and yeah, things? Yeah, transitions, definitely. Yeah. Um, but I do, I, I, I kind of, um, because cinema is my first language mm. before books or, 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 or anything else, um, uh, I kind of seem to think in, like if someone says your film looks like a painting, I get offended. Right. Because I don't want it to look like a painting, I want mm -hmm. it to look like a film, right. you know. Um, and, and when I'm imagining the film, 
uh, I'm imagining sound and image working 50-50 in relation to each other in a time-based media. You know, um, I, I, I always love Tarkovsky's um, sculpting in time as a concept, sure. you know. Um, uh, and so I think in kind of moments of time and, and, and often that's a, that's a cut, that's, a bit, you know, right. two images juxtaposed or, or whatever. And, and the, the, you know, it's interesting because I was noticing certain things that, that would scare me and yet you do them very boldly and it has to do with the rhythm of what you're doing in terms of a shot, but also um, in relation to performance. Like there are some, in the speech at the end, there are some camera movements that are tied out, that are timed out very specifically to passages. Mm. And it made me wonder um, how you work with Gary, how you work with actors. Do you have a rehearsal period? I and do, then, yeah. I mean, I mean that's I, like six so, questions. So, 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 so having spent a lot of time thinking about how the film works in my head, seeing the film in my head, uh, I then spend um, two weeks with the cinematographer and we go through every scene, uh, talking about light and light direction. This is two weeks in prep? Yes, okay. in prep. Uh, and then I do four weeks rehearsal with the actors, ah, okay. um, which is difficult often because uh, unfortunately actors don't really get paid for rehearsals and agents try and jam pack them job to job. Uh, but I, I make it a kind of condition of, of, of accepting the role that we do the rehearsals and that's everybody. Um, and we rehearse and so... Does your cinematographer uh, he attend those as well? In he pops out. in and out and, um, and you know, I can call him in, he, he'll be around. So I call him in if there's a scene that I want him to look at and so on. And for instance, this, you know, in this movie, there's this 10 page dialogue scene with 17 men sat around a table in the center of the movie. Um, and without having had the rehearsal period, I wouldn't have been able to fully understand the geography of the scene and where the, where, the, where the tension is, where the pauses are. So once I've rehearsed, that, that all is kind of revealed to me in rehearsals, um, and then I can start planning how to shoot it. I don't, I don't really do coverage, which makes producers very nervous, um, but I don't, uh, uh, because you don't have time to do coverage if you're being very specific, sure. you know. So I try, and, I try and think the scene out and then, um, uh, and then, and then shoot specifically to cut um and then on and then and then the the day of shooting i get up you know uh very early and i write shot lists and and those are a safety net for me um and they also can you know tell my ad's and so on uh what the day looks like um but but i, I but i also have learned now that 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 i guess you know i don't have to con try and control everything and that if something happens on the day, I can be flexible and move with 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 the. That's day something as well. you feel you've arrived at. Is this an earlier yeah. earlier in your career you might have been? Especially less in my TV days, yeah. I was trying. I was so scared that I was trying to control everything. Sure. Um, and uh, and actually, my sister um, said to me, "Try saying thank you." Um, uh, uh, magic word. Um, <laughs> but if someone comes to you with an idea, rather than blocking it sure. and allowing your ego to kind of get in the way of hearing it um, or your control, you know, freakishness, um, uh, the first thing you do is say thank you. And that dispels the ego. And then you can hear the idea and then you can decide whether it works within the context of what you're doing, you know. Um, so I try and do that. And when you're in the when you're in that prep period of rehearsal, that four weeks, like how far, you know, is it? It's, it sounds like an approach that's very much. And I know you've done theater, is that mm, right? Yeah. Right? And so that it's is it a similar approach because it's um, 
do you find, do certain actors not want to rehearse or does everybody, like, because I find, it, I've, my experience has been that some actors love it yeah. and then some actors are like, oh, I don't, I don't want to get into that now. And how, how, how much does it get up on its feet? I mean, are you, are you really it staging? Gets up on its feet. You yeah. really I do. Mean, yeah, we do a lot of talking and I think that lunch is a really important element to rehearsals. It's important to get to know each other and find each other's rhythms and, you know, just understand who we are as humans. Um, uh, but we do also, you know, block out bits of set and start to figure out. Um, get it taped out. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. And, uh, so then your production designer must be on fairly early too. Yeah. I mean, it's part of this whole Yeah, exactly. Thing. And I try and, I try and develop the film, all the elements concurrently, organically, uh, so that we all have a sense of what we're doing and I can get clear. It's about kind of, for me, clarifying more and more what the film is going to be, you know, um, discovering it as, as, as we go along. I think actors who don't like rehearsals, I'm, I'm, I'm not that interested. Well, in only because it's, to me, I think it has to do with, and it's interesting because you're also, you're, you're British. So there's a high level of training, I think, mm. with a lot, I mean, certainly someone like Gary Oldman. I mean, he's, yeah. I mean, and so I think that, um, and it's interesting because you've also, though, worked with young actors, and I find that actors who haven't had that kind of training might get a little daunted by it because um, it's a technique, that there's that kind of craft that, they, that isn't, they might be incredibly talented actors, but wouldn't necessarily have had that sort of discipline of craft that in, in the United States, to some degree, I think has sort of receded a bit from maybe where it was in the 70s, where it was just like, that was everything. Mm. And so, um, you know, you, you, I just find that different actors have different approaches, you know. I'm yeah, I, I like actors who, have, who are skilled, yeah. basically. Um, <laughs> I'm not so keen on actors who think that they don't need to learn their lines and that they can just be inspired on the day. I mean, what I've found is that great, the greatest actors, be it Gary Oldman or, or Meryl Streep or Kate Blanchett or these actors, they prepare for months. Mm -hmm. You know, Gary took at least five months every day preparing for this movie. Wow. And, and, that means that they arrive on set and are free to be inspired. Yeah. Whereas some younger actors who are more kind of um, brought up in the Hollywood world mm -hmm. um, uh, feel like they, you know, they're just going to turn up and be inspired on the day and it's about you know, um, just being in the moment. And it is about all of that, but sure. you have to have that prep first. Yeah. You have to have, have, have done your homework, you know. And 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 to some degree, certainly with the actors you're talking about, have that level of of training, really. I mean, because yeah, it's, or, yeah. or not. I mean, I, you know, Saoirse Ronan, when when yeah, in, in, in Atonement, yeah. she was 11. She'd never done anything before. I, I like actors who have either done nothing, yeah. so you can completely form them, yes. or actors who are very very experienced and trained. It's mm. the kind of middle ground that right. is a little bit tricky, <laughs> you know. Right. And you were describing... But with Saoirse in, in Atonement, yeah, Saoirse with instance, Saoirse, yeah. that, you know, she was 11. We spent four weeks rehearsing. She spent a lot of time with Vanessa Redgrave. We would do exercises where they would copy each other's movements. I mean, it's very touching to see Saoirse and, you know, and, and Vanessa together. But we would do kind of exercise, a lot of exercises, less on your feet stuff, but also just making sure that she knew her lines and sure. she understood who the who Bryony Tallis was and, you know, and... and um, and and gaining a trust in Kira and James McAvoy and all of that stuff, you know. Yeah. And also figuring out, actors often hold tension in a place. Right. Like um, James McAvoy always held his tension in his jaw, so he slightly jutted his jaw out. And that takes a few days to figure out what he's doing. And then when you say, release your jaw, stop doing that, release your jaw. Right. 
you find that he relaxes and suddenly you something get this performance through, and right. something new and raw and emotional and, and vulnerable and all of that stuff comes through. Mm -hmm. And then we were talking earlier, because I find this, when you describe this process of trying to get everything to move concurrently, that includes even the music you were saying, which I thought was yeah. fascinating. Yeah, Dario Marinelli, who, um, you know, all of these people, Dario Marinelli, Sarah Greenwood, Jacqueline Duran, um, are people who have worked with me for many years and we trust each other and, and I wouldn't, you know, um, I certainly wouldn't be here tonight without them. Um, uh, and uh, Dario worked with me first on Pride and Prejudice and then did Atonement and so on and so forth. And we have this technique where we have this kind of practice where um, we, um, I show him the script and he starts writing the score based on the script. Um, and then I had a photograph of Gary walking and that and that kind of pace, that, that urgency that I was talking about. Um, I show that to Dario and, um, and talk about the rhythm and the tempo and the urgency. And so he starts to develop based on that photograph. Um, and this is before you're shooting, right? Yeah, this yeah, is, yeah, yeah. This is months before. Right. Um, and then when we get to set, I can play that music back. Mm. Um, and uh, it can inform the actors or it can inform the camera or whatever. And then also in the, you know, as soon as you start doing an assembly cut, you have elements of that music and you can start to play and see the film. The film grows as a whole thing rather than in kind of blocks, you know. Right. That's quite beautiful. It's really, I, I, it, yeah, I, I, I love it, you know. I, lo I love making films. Now, do you, let, it shows. <laughs> now, let me ask, does your, um, does your, does the way you approach theatre directing how does I mean obviously do you try to make things uh, feel because you're 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 directing it's interesting because there's something theatrical to some degree about your uh, filmic approach and I'm wondering and there must be something filmic about your directorial uh, approach in theater um, like there's certain things like you have that you've got that one shot where you're where you've got the sort of passing off of the different players and how it plan and then somebody comes out and lands and hits that and it's all beautifully sort of laid out and I would imagine that those moments that moment wasn't in the script I would imagine was it or, or was no, it no. yeah and and so I wonder what if it, how, how you see I mean obviously there's the obvious which is that there's literally the camera but how do you see these the, the two forms as being related and in what ways different I came to theatre very late. Um, I only started directing theatre about four years ago, <coughs> um, which is unusual. Usually it goes the other way yeah, around, you yeah. know. Uh, but I, I guess I kind of felt that there were things that I wanted to explore that I was unable to explore in film mm. in such a commercial environment. <coughs> um, and so I started working in theatre, and I guess my language kind of in, 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 in theater is very, you know, I talk about cuts right. um, and hard cuts and soft cuts and they're all a bit confused. Pre-lapping. Pre-lapping. <laughs> right. and, um, and I also talk about, um, you know, cutting. I, 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 I love the cutting from an extreme close-up to an extreme wide shot. Mm. Um, I love the kind of visual impact of, of that. Uh, it's something that David Lean used to do a mm -hmm. lot. Um, the classic cut from the match to the sun rising, for yeah. instance. Um, so, so I do that in theatre as well. But you, it's about kind of taking the focus of the audience down and down and down to a tiny point and then smash cut to right. something big and wide. And um, But you can play with form in theatre in a way that, is more difficult in film. Uh, people are less accepting of, of 
the um, of 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 playing with form, basically sure. formalism. Right. Um, uh, my parents ran a puppet theatre, and um, in London, it was the first ever um, purpose-built puppet theatre that opened in 1961. <laughs> and our lives revolved around the booking book, right? Um, and if the booking book was full, then uh, we had lamb chops for supper. And if right. it wasn't full, then you'd have curried cornflakes or right. something. Um, did you participate in, in the, in the theatre? Yeah, yeah, oh, you yeah, did, yeah. yeah. And, um, and every 365 days a year, you'd have to pick up the phone and say, hello, Little Angel Theatre, um, and take a booking. And my dad once uh, picked up the phone and, and a woman, the woman said on the other end, um, is there audience participation involved? Because we don't like audience participation. And my dad um, said, bless him, um, uh, said, yes, madam, there is. There is the participation of the imagination. Mm. And, um, and I've been thinking about that ever since. Uh, and, and, and I find I really, I'm really, I mean, you know, film, film, not digital, maybe I don't, yeah, but film doesn't really exist. You know, movement doesn't, the moving image doesn't exist. It's persistence of vision. It, it, we create the movement in our minds and we, um, and we create the story in our minds just as we create, you know, words out of the, out of letters, you know, um, thoughts and, and so that, that, you know, that idea that, that it's about the participation of the imagination is an idea that I try and employ in film, and I certainly tried to, to explore that in Anna Karenina um, a lot. Uh, uh, but I think is I think you're, is, is is something you can explore probably a little bit more in, in theatre than you can in film. Mm. Audiences expect every every you know frame every frame every inch of the screen to be filled with some kind of reality. Really. Right. Right. And do you, I, they're telling me I have one, but I, I still want to keep going because I have a million questions I could ask you. But, um, the, you know, you mentioned Lean. When you begin a movie like this, what kind of research do you do? I'm sorry, that's not a one-minute question, but still, I'm interested. Um, uh, a lot. You know, I read as much as possible, although the re required reading for Churchill is extreme. Uh, he wrote more words than Shakespeare um, uh, himself, and then there's everything else written about him. Right. Uh, but I read as much as possible. I, you know, I I look at um, filmic research, film yeah. uh, Pathé newsreel. Mm -hmm. um, I look at uh, it, you know um, uh, documentaries of the period. I find really useful British documentary. I find really useful photographs, thousands and thousands of photographs. Um, and then I also, th you know, I begin. I find myself drawn to certain after after that experience of Pan when I was really low. Um, I, I met up with um, Alfonso Cuaron and was talking to him about it and he gave me a very good piece of advice. He said, why don't you go and watch all the films that you fell in love with mm. and made you fall in love with films? So That's I did that. And I, and I spent a few months just watching movies um, on my sofa. What did you watch? And I found that I was, I watched you know, everything that I ever loved, like you know, um, well, Scorsese and Lynch and Tarkovsky and Bergman and... Kurosawa and you know all the all the greats and Robert Bresson I'm a particular fan of, mm. um, but I also found at that time that I was really drawn to Hitchcock, ah. um, and the economy and the and the specificity of of his um, mise en scène and and his choice of shots, um, and so I think probably in terms of research this film is most kind of inspired by, by Bresson and Hitchcock. Oh, wow, yeah. You know. That makes sense. It does have that very, the rhythmic kind of language style that you describe as being your language. It's very apparent in the movie. Um, 
I guess that's they're, they're telling me I'm done. So I just want to say congratulations, wonderful Thank film. You. And Thank great you. Thank you very very much. Yeah. Thank you. That's great, huh? Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more from the moderator of this interview, Director Matt Reeves, check out episode 82, which features Mr. Reeves discussing his summer film, War for the Planet of the Apes, with director Drew Goddard. You can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. As we get deeper into award season, we'll continue to give you director-focused conversations about this year's most anticipated films. So be sure to subscribe to our podcast to stay up to date on the great discussions we have coming up. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.